Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no offseason. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this in the Sully Baseball studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. A lot of stuff to go over today. Some of it fun, some of it not so much fun. But I, I, I'm going to go, we're gonna just going to dive into baseball right now. There's a couple other things that people have asked me about and, and, and people have tweeted at me and said, are you going to say anything about this? And, 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 I, and I will. Um, and I've had a couple of people say, man, I, can you do it two or three days a week? Because they're used to me doing 365 of these a year. I said, no, I can't. Um, trust me, it will pay off. It will pay off because your pal Sully is going to be doing other things in the world of Sully Baseball beyond the podcast that hopefully it will all connect and become a fun experience for everyone following the podcast and loving Sully Baseball. Hey, um, it's May. It's May 3rd, 2017 while I'm recording this. And so we're at the point of the year where it's still very early. It, it's it's way too early to get a sense of anything, really. But it's not so early that we can't start looking at alarming trends. What, I'm, what I mean by that is, you can't, it's not so early in the season you can say, it's April, don't worry about it. It's not, it's May. And at the end of this month, we will be about one-third of the way through the baseball season. Now, I have said the unofficial first checkpoint of the year is Memorial Day, the end of May. That's pretty much where you can point to and say, all right, maybe we'll have a general idea of what the hell we are. It's tough to tell in April because any team can have a good month, any team can have a crap month. But if you have that, you only have six months to put together a pennant winner. And if you take two of those months and you stink, it's going to take a lot to dig out of that. If you have two of the months and you're pretty good, well, then you can build upon that and you can absorb a bad month. If you are a team that had a surprising April, and there are a few teams with surprising Aprils, I'm going to get into this a little bit, in terms of a good surprising April, then you can honestly take a look and say, hey, well, like, let's see how we look in May. If we're still looking good in May, then, you know, holy Toledo, maybe we'll go for it. If you're a team that got off to a disappointing start, and said, well, maybe we just had a crap couple of weeks and took, took a little bit to, you know, coalesce. I mean, the 2005 Astros got off to a terrible start. They went to the World Series. The 2009 Yankees got off to a terrible start. They won the damn World Series. So there's a lot of times teams can turn it around. It usually takes one really good month to kickstart it. If you have start off the season with two bad months, then you should probably take a good look in the mirror and say, are we going to be better? And if we're not, do we have the assets to trade that will make us better? Now, when you're looking around baseball right now, there's only one team that doesn't have 10 wins. Only one team is still in single digits in the win column, and that's Toronto. There are one, two, three, four teams that are in single digits in the loss column. Washington, Houston, Baltimore, and most surprisingly, the New York Yankees, who I did not think was going to be bad this year. I didn't think the Yankees were going to be bad this year, but I didn't have super high hopes for them. I really didn't. I thought they were going to be an 83-84 win team. Well, they're off to a terrific start. This is coming from a Boston fan. I'll get into my Boston fandom later in this podcast. You got to give them credit where credit is due. You know, the the fact that they've started the season 16 and 9 and are currently tied with Baltimore at the top of the American League East, give them credit. They started the season a hell of a lot better than I thought they were going to. And a big big reason that the Yankees are a team that are a hell of a lot better than I thought they were going to be uh, is the fact that, first of all, uh, Aaron Judge has is having an MVP caliber season and doing it faster than I thought he was going to. Um, and you have 
contributions from players like Chase Headley's off to a good start. Uh, Torres is off to a good start. Starlin Castro is off to a good start. Um, Brett Gardner, uh, you know, has had spurts of power. Matt Holiday has been a lot better than I thought he was going to be. He's a 907 OPS at this point. But most importantly, uh, they've got terrific pitching, save for maybe one outing from Tanaka. Severino's been very good. Pineda's been very good. Uh, Sabathi has been up and down. But he's been, you know, for the most part, pretty good. He got bombed the other day. Um, Chapman, my least favorite player in baseball, has been very good. Clippard's been very good. Adam Warren, their pitching has been very, very good. And, and, and they wound up getting some good performance from other people. But the Yankees' pitching has been outstanding. And they can hit. They don't have a great lineup, but Judge is ahead of schedule. So you got to give them credit where credit's due. Do I think they're a pennant contender? Well, it's the American League. And there's a lot of parody in the American League. So the answer to that is yes, of course they could be a pennant contender. Now, it would behoove the Yankees to have a very good May. Because if they have a very good May, then guess what? Then they're real contenders. Now, you take a look at the rest of the American League. As I said, very few teams are... In, only one team has single-digit wins. Only one team has single-digit losses. Only four teams have single-digit losses. Most of the teams, when you see right now, like the Central, the AL Central, the White Sox are in first place, just like we all predicted. They're a half a game ahead of the Indians, Tigers, and Twins. The Red Sox and the Rays are within striking distance of first place. Uh, and the Angels, got to give the Angels credit, who I thought were going to be a possible 100-loss team. They're 15-13. and 13. They're on a winning streak. The, the division that amazes me is the National League Central. The Cubs are in first, the Pirates are in last, and two games separate them. We're here in May. Two games separate the Cubs and the Pirates. The Cubs are 14-12. The Pirates are 12-14. Now, do I think the Reds are going to be contenders? Do I think the Brewers are going to be contenders? No, I don't, because 162 games has a way of weeding out teams that happen to have a good few weeks. And the, what I just mentioned was the Brewers are at 500. They're mediocre into May. The Reds go off to a fast start. They're sub-500. It seems like every team is right around 500 right now. Now, the one thing I know I, I got very wrong in my predictions, one thing I got absolutely wrong in my preseason predictions was I, I was not a big Houston believer. And one of the reasons why I wasn't a big Houston believer is because I thought that Dallas Keuchel and the Cy Young Award winning season he had in what year was 2015 I thought that was a fluke. I thought Keuchel was a, a, you know, a good major league pitcher who happened to have one really great year. And as it turned out, Dallas Keuchel is in a whole lot of awesome this year. You know, it's, you know, of course, way, way too early to, you know, tell you, you know, to say Cy Young MVP or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, let's go, let's go to BaseballReference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. And let's see how Dallas Keuchel is doing, shall we? I think he's doing okay. Uh, scroll down to team pitching. Hey, Dallas Keuchel has pitched six games. His record is 5-0. and He has a complete game. His ERA is 1.21. He has walked... Um, has he walked anybody? He's walked 11 batters and struck out 36 in 44 and two-thirds innings. He has been... Lights the lights out. He's been terrific. And because of that, because you know, and the rest of the starting rotation is, you know, they've had some good days and have some bad days, but you know you could hand the ball to Keichel and things would go well. And they and Altuve has been playing well, and um Springer has hit a bunch of home runs. The fact that the Astros are in first place. You know what? I, I said the most unpredictable division was going to be the West, and the Astros have got off to the best start, and right now are sitting with a three-and-a-half game lead. I know that's too early to point anything, but that's the biggest lead in the American League, and the biggest lead in the National League 
are the Nationals, who are the only team with a winning record in that division at 17-9. and And the fact that their lineup, even with Eaton out for the season, has just been... I mean, the fact that, what, was it... Was it uh, Rendon, who drove in 10 runs in one day? Turner's hit for the cycle? Daniel Murphy's lost his damn mind? Ryan Zimmerman's batting 419 with an OPS of 1.326? Bryce Harper's batting 389. His ER his OPS is 1.270? I mean, I mean Jason Wirth is, is like the number nine hitter at this point. Yes, they lost Adam Eaton, who was off to a wonderful start. But you know what? There's so much. I did not see the Nationals' offense getting off to this kind of a start. And the fact that they have Scherzer, the fact that Gio Gonzalez is off to a great start, the fact that Strasburg is off to a decent start. You know, they're going to have to fix a couple things in their bullpen because uh, Blake Training is not really cutting it at this point. But, you know, they have the bats and the way they're playing, and if the the rest of the East keeps playing the way they're playing, uh, this is a situation where you can't really win the division in April, but you can create enough of a pad that you're going, okay, uh, we're going to put the seed of doubt in Philly, in Atlanta, in Miami. And the Mets are doing it for themselves. The two most disappointing teams, now, I mean, look at you can point right. You can look at who's in the basement. In the basement in the American League, you have Toronto, who was in the last two ALCSs. You had Texas, who had the best record in the American League last year. You have Kansas City, the world champion of 2015. You have the Mets, the NL champion of 2015 and a wild card team last year. You have the Pirates, and then you have the Giants. Ah, the Giants. The Giants are 10 and 18. The Giants are in a strange place right now. A very strange place because where what are they going to do? Now, the best thing going for the Giants right now is first and second place are currently owned by Arizona and Colorado. I do not think that Arizona and Colorado will be first place and second place by the end of the year. I think that they are teams that may have some talent, but aren't ready for prime time. They're not there yet. Now, if they have, if both of those teams, if Arizona and Colorado have excellent Mays, then guess what? Congratulations, you're contenders. If you get to the one-third mark of the season, you're a contender. And the Giants are now not a contender. So whatever, if they have any hopes of getting into an odd year postseason, then they're going to have to do a few things to fix stuff. Now, Denard Spann's on the disabled list. Brandon Crawford's on the disabled list. Chris Stratton's on the disabled list. Aaron Hill's on the disabled list. Uh... Nick Hunt, you know, uh, Buster Posey was on the DL for a while. Posey's off to a good start offensively. Pence seems to get big hits, but he's not having a great start. Nunez is, huh. Panic is off to a decent start. Belt is off to an okay start. He's at least he's driven in a bunch of runs. And the kid, Christian Arroyo, seems to get a bunch of hits. But this offense is, eh, not great. The bullpen is more things change, the more things stay the same. Because, you know, Melanson's got some saves. He's also blown a few big games. But then you have Madison. The whole hope for the Giants is that you have the top of their rotation be Bumgarner and Cueto. And the fact that if you combine Moore and Samarzda, they're one and eight with an ERA well over six, then you cannot really afford to lose many Madison Baumgartner starts. Now he has zero wins. He's pitched well, but he has zero wins. 
His ERA is three. He has zero wins. He has struck out 28 and walked four over 27 innings. He has zero wins. He has more home runs than wins. He has more dirt bike crashes than wins. Now, you don't dirt bike in a regular season, folks. If you are if you are Madison Bumgarner, and I'm not, and I'm not going to pretend that I know more about baseball than Madison Bumgarner. Madison Bumgarner has been in the league for eight plus seasons. He has three World Series rings, all of that stuff. He's a millionaire many, many times over. He is signed through the end of the 2019 season. But hey, he is still in his 20s. And if he stays healthy, he can get a big honking contract from either San Francisco or another team while he's still relatively young. But one thing you don't do is dirt bike. You don't do stuff like that that could put all of that at risk. And the thing about when you injure parts of your body is a strain on the, a sprain on his left shoulder. He's a left-handed pitcher. You don't know the chain reaction of events that can take place when you have an injury to your shoulder. Are you going to favor another part of your body? Are you going to wind up injuring something else? Is it going to affect how you deliver? These are all things I don't know and you don't know. And the Giants' most important player is on the disabled list for the next three months. Remember how he broke down the season? So it's basically a six-month season. We have one month in the can, which means we have five more to go, of which the Giants are going to play half the damn season without their most important player. Which brings up a philosophical question. If you remove Madison Bumgarner from a team, which is now basically saying you're banking that Johnny Cueto is going to, who has injury issues of his own, is going to remain a superstar ace. And you're going to hope that Matt Cain can continue to go, because Matt Cain's actually pitched well, can go back to his 2012 form, and Matt Moore and Jeff Samarja can turn everything around. And somehow their lineup is going to get better. My question is, is that realistic? And if not, should the Giants be considering doing stuff like when Span comes off the disabled list or, and I'll say it, when Crawford comes off the disabled list, making deals? Should they take a good long look and say, can we get something for more? Can we get something for Samarzda? Can we get something for Melanson? Because you're better off looking and putting young pieces into the puzzle if you don't have a shot for this year. Because I mentioned, all the other teams are bunched together. And if you say, oh, we're in last place and we just lost Madison Bumgarner, and by the time he comes back, it's going to be late in the season. And if the Giants haven't gone on a skyrocket in flight, afternoon delight, May and June... That by the time you get to August, it may be a lost cause. And you got to think philosophically about that if you're the San Francisco Giants. This is what happens when you have a veteran team. Not the dirt biking thing. That's an extraordinary piece of idiocy. I love you, Madison Bumgarner. But we have to remember, these are athletes. These are not Mensa candidates. Madison Bumgarner got to this point not because, man, have you listened to him? That guy... That guy's a philosopher. That guy, he, he's like Neil deGrasse Tyson is what he is. He's so brilliant. No, he's a dude who discovered his left arm can throw the ball well. And there's a market for that. And he is now a millionaire with rings on his fingers. But he risked that because he was bored. Which makes me say, get an app. Play computer solitaire. 
Catch up on Netflix. Don't get on a dirt bike. If you live your career and you retire at age 37, 38, 10 years from now with millions upon millions of dollars in the bank, then grab a goddamn dirt bike. Sorry, Ray. These are not smart people like Noah Syndergaard. Not a smart guy. Hey, Noah, I think we need an MRI. Nah, I'm not going to get an MRI. Really, Noah? I think you need an MRI. Nah, not getting me an MRI. Now, the most, uh, well, arguably the most important player on the Mets is going to be gone for how long? I don't know. Tear lat muscle. Whenever I hear tear and lat and muscle, it's not a good thing. So now you take a look at two of the teams that were playoff teams last year. Two of the last three National League champions are in dead last place, and you're removing their ace. And what does that do? That puts those teams in a position, without their ace, that they have to have a dynamic month of May. Is it possible? Sure. Dodgers did it last year without Clayton Kershaw. Is it probable? No, it's not probable. Should you bank on it? Absolutely not. So the Mets and the Giants and the Blue Jays and the Royals, that's a whole different thing. The Blue Jays are off to a terrible start and they have a ton of veterans on their team. And the Royals are off to a rotten start and they have a bunch of potential free agents on their team. I mean, the Royals, if they don't have a great May, they're going to start selling by beginning of June. To all these teams that are bunched in the middle, so say, who do you want? They're yours. Get us, get us one or two good players in return. But at least the Royals and the Giants won a title out of this. The Mets and the Blue Jays are staring that ugly reality in the face of, we may have to rebuild. We may have to start again. And we didn't get to where we wanted to get. We didn't win what we were. We're so close. And we were in it last year. And we were in it the year before. We can't give up now. And that's what happened to the Phillies. That's what happened to teams that hold on to their club a little too long. A tiny bit too long. It becomes easier to look in the mirror if you're the Royals. Like, hey, look, it, we won back-to-back pennants. We won a title with these guys. Maybe we'll keep one or two of them, and the rest of it will rebuild our farm and, and get them back the next time. It's tougher when you are so close. It should be easier for the Giants. Really, the Giants won three titles with pretty much the same cast and won another wild card with a pretty similar cast. They went for it again this year, and if it's not going to happen, and they have the worst record in the National League right now, and it's probably not going to get much better, it will behoove them to do this. Do you know who did this? The Red Sox. When things fell apart for the Red Sox in 2012, they started trading away their veterans. And they got plugging in veterans to you know put here and there. They wound up winning a World Series in 2013. And you know what they did after that? They made more trades when they realized, you know, we're not going to win this year, so let's make some deals. And not all the deals worked, but they got a Cy Young Award winner out of it in Rick Porcello. They got other pieces, and they were able to not clog up their team with a lot of bad free agents. All right, Sandoval is a terrible signing. But for the most part, they made it so when they needed to make acquisitions, there were ones that made sense, like price, like sale. You don't hold on to it too long. Giants, if you don't have a good May, put a big for sale sign on everyone. Agree? Maybe you keep Posey. But you know, if you can get something from Matt Kane, who a few years ago looked like his career was done, if you can get a good young player in your system for Matt Cain, that's a victory. If you could get some good, a good, young, solid player for Span or Pena or Pence. But we love Pence. Great. The DVDs are still there. Watch them. You got one month. Giants, Royals, 
Blue Jays and Mets. If not, build. Because you're if you don't have a good May, you're not winning this year anyway. Our fans won't accept anything less than a championship. Then you're screwed. Because you ain't winning. Unless you have a good May. Ah, it's so early. You got two-thirds of the season. Yeah, but the rest of the league has either been mediocre or may have a good May. One of those mediocre teams is going to have a good May. Now, the Giants have a slightly better situation than the Mets. The Giants can say, hmm, will the Diamondbacks and Rockies fall back to earth? Yeah, probably. The Mets can't look up and say, will the Nationals fall back to earth? No, probably not. And chances are, the wild card is going to come out of this mix of these other teams. Nearly at the one-third mark. We'll be there in a few weeks. You have a month to get your act together. It's not that early. It's early. You can still turn this ship around. But it gets really, really crummy if you don't turn around by the end of May. Now, I'm going to address one thing. And um, this is not a PC rant. This is me responding to the terrible thing that happened. Someone yelling an N-bomb at Adam Jones at the Red Sox game. Obviously, um, whoever did that, um, I hope they got thrown out. I hope they're never allowed back in. They're not a baseball fan. They're a drunken asshole. But there's, there's a reaction that comes. And I'm a native New Englander. I lived in the suburbs of Boston for a long time growing up. Um, and uh, I'm a diehard Boston Red Sox fan. And it's always dangerous whenever you dip your toe into this subject. I, I see a lot of people, and they tend to be Bostonians who look like me. I'm an Irish-Italian dude. Who get upset when the racist label gets thrown at Boston. Now, I, and I see a lot of people who don't look like me people of a different ethnic or racial background tend to be the ones who say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what your guys are, that's what that city's like. And you see a lot of defensiveness from the Fitzies and the Murphys and the Sullies of the world when this happens. Like, oh, why, you know, this is, why is this being thrown at us and everything like that? And I'm just going to say this. And of course, there are people like the the assholes at WEEI who are racist. I mean, they just they say very racist things there, and I, I just there's no reason to listen to WEEI unless you're listening to the Red Sox game. Um, you know, those 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 hosts on that show are just the worst, and they're of course leading the charge of well, where's the proof that this happened? Well, Adam Jones said so. Well, can we? Was there any confirmation? Because, of course, Adam Jones's word isn't good enough. And all the players who say, you know, like Sabathia saying that he, that's where he hears it the most, is in Boston. And of which Ellis Burks famously said when his time in Boston ended for the first time after the 1992 season, which he said, why would any brother ever want to play in Boston? And Boston has had a reputation for this. For a long, long time, whether it was school busing, whether it was the Yawkey family and those horrible, the horrible Yawkeys and the, and the way the Red Sox were the last to integrate. I know the Boston Braves integrated before the Red Sox, um, that people have said that, the, and what was the thing they said on, on SNL of the, 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 SNL anchor saying he's rooting for the uh, the Falcons because it's the blackest city in America versus the most racist city they've ever been to. And I, I find the people who get defensive and say that doesn't reflect the city and it's bullshit and everything like that tend to be the ones who this doesn't affect. Tends to be the ones this never they never experience it. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, maybe things happen that you didn't detect. 
Maybe there are things that fly over your head. And just because it isn't someone in a white sheet burning a cross doesn't mean it's not racist or makes it uncomfortable for someone to be there. And my, my, my plea to Boston fans whose instinct it is to say it's not racist, prove it's racist, everything, is to stop and, and just listen for a second. There have been, I remember there was a time I had an exchange on, online with a uh, comedian friend of mine who's actually become quite successful, and she's from Massachusetts too. Her name's Jen Kirkman. And I wound up saying something on her page of which all of her friends immediately pounced on what I said saying it was misogynist. And I, I actually truthfully don't remember what it is I typed, but I thought, how is that misogynist? I'm not misogynist. I, I made some sort of comment or remark and like, and everyone jumped on it. And I got very defensive. I'm not massaging that, 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 that. And I, and I actually am sad that I don't remember what is a type, I type because years later I've been thinking about that going, you know what? Maybe instead of saying I'm not, I should examine why everyone thought I was. Maybe, even if it wasn't my intent, I should see why this is the perception. And instead of always being defensive, maybe I should take a good long look and say, am I doing something that I'm not perceiving or something that I realize is this, that, or the other? And maybe that's what the good folks in Boston should do, especially the ones who are being super defensive right now. Is it every Red Sox fan? No. I'm glad they gave him a standing ovation, Adam Jones, the other day, but that doesn't make up for it. That doesn't make up for the reputation. And, you know, it reminds me of someone I know who keeps getting fired from their job because they're working with idiots, they're working with idiots. And I'm like, do you know what? If everyone you're working with is an idiot, then maybe you got to take a look at yourself. Maybe, just maybe it has to do with you. Maybe, just maybe. It isn't that they're an idiot. Maybe it has to be that there's something that you're doing that you don't realize that you're doing that is causing a perception. And maybe, just maybe, that's the thing that you should be addressing. You know, if everyone says, this is wrong, you're doing this wrong, Look into the mirror. Maybe you're doing something wrong. And maybe it is something unintentional. Maybe it is a mindset you don't see. But maybe it's something you need to address. So if you're gonna, even if you're gonna type something at me and something you're gonna write saying, you know, this is a PC rant, I'm here to listen about baseball. This is about fandom. Baseball doesn't always stick to baseball. And this is a reality. How we perceive cities is very much based upon the sports teams. Here in LA, people's thoughts of Dodger fans being flaky. You know, people in LA being flaky. That fans in, in Philly are mean. That fans in New York are arrogant. That fans in Wrigley we're drunk and they don't care if they won or lost. That fans in St. Louis are knowledgeable, but a little full of themselves. Fans in Texas are just realizing they weren't watching a football game. Fans in Seattle are passionate and probably had a little too much coffee. And fans in Boston, we look to the fandom of how it reflects the city. So yeah, it's important. And yeah, it's important to shout down the idiots who are there. To drown out those voices. But it's also important to say, I wonder why everyone says this about us. I wonder why. And examine that. And do you know what? Maybe, just maybe, that'll make the experience of Boston one of my favorite places in the world, a better place for everyone to go 
no matter what their pigment is. So if you're mad at me for saying that, send me a tweet at Sully Baseball. Because if you're mad about what I just said, then that's a you issue. Now, I just want to get that off, especially because it, you know no one could ever say, oh, you didn't even address that because you're a Red Sox fan. You wouldn't dare say, yeah, I just addressed it. And my address is to say, let's be productive about this, shall we? Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey, um, latest edition of the teams that should have won. And I've been uh, got a bunch of really, really good suggestions uh, over the last few weeks. If, they, if you want me to cover your team in the teams that should have won, by all means, please, please send me your favorite team and the team that you think should have been the winner um, at Twitter at Sully Baseball. I've got a couple good suggestions for the Expos, a couple really good suggestions for the Padres and for the Dodgers, and I'm really thinking about that. Um, I, I'm going to do the Tigers today. And the Tigers... The Tigers are a team that have had a lot of success and have had success over several different eras. Um, they've played in, how many? They've played in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven World Series. Eleven pennants have been won by Detroit, and they've won the World Series in 1935, 1945, 1968, and 1984. Several different eras have had that. And they've, you know, they've won pennants in the 1900s, in the 2000s, and in the 2010s. So they've had, there have been a lot of great years. If you're a Tiger fan, there's been some, you know, there have been some down years, of course. But there, there's been a lot of success in Detroit. There's been a lot of success. Um, in terms of, like, they've had a couple World Series Game 7s that they've lost. And you got to go back to the Ty Cobb era in 1909 or against the Gas House Gang in 1934, or against the Reds in 1940. But you know what? Those are a little before my time. So I, and, and I'm really not going to get much into that, you know, especially because a lot of the players on the 34 and the 40 team wound up being part of the championship teams of 35 and 45. Uh, the Tigers had one of the biggest World Series upsets of all time in 1968. Uh, not that it was that remarkable of an, in, in terms of the team. They were a 103-win team. It wasn't like they stunk. But the fact that they won a Game 7 where Bob Gibson was pitching, that individually was a huge upset and made them the champs. Uh, they had one of the best... The, the best team they ever had statistically in terms of win-loss was the 84 Tigers. who They just stampeded through the AL East, swept the Royals... And then they beat the Padres in, in five games. And that's their last championship. Now, there was a lot. There was a couple of teams I really considered in this title. Um, the first one was 87. Now, the reason I said 87 was that this was a squad that people would remember the remarkable finish, the remarkable sweep of the Blue Jays that they had at the end of the year. And that would have been considered one of the great comebacks in baseball history. There was a lot of players left over from the 84 team there. Obviously, manager Sparky Anderson, Evans, Whitaker, Trammell, Gibson, Chet Lemon were all still there. Larry Herndon was still there. Um, you still had Jack Morris, you still had Willie Hernandez, you still had Dan Petrie. There were still a lot of players left over from the team. You would have had Doyle Alexander and his 9-0 record, including three complete game shutouts. That would have been looked upon as one of the great acquisitions of all time. And the fact that it cost him John Smoltz, it, the fact that it cost him John Smoltz makes people think it's one of the worst acquisitions of all time. If they had won the whole kit and also the caboodle, it would have been remembered as one of the best acquisitions of all time because it would have led directly to their World Series title. It would have been a nice title to have for Frank Tanana as well. But it was that narrative was gone because it would have had a great finish and then they won the World Series and it would have added to the lore of 1984 and would have given a couple of more people a, a World Series ring along the way too. 
Um, but I, it's tough for me to pick that one because of so many players left over from 84. Um, an, another year I really was considering was 1972, which is a topic of a lot of research that I'm doing right now for a writing project. Uh, that team was one swing away from winning the pennant. And that would have been a real, like, scrappy, playing above their heads sort of team in a season that was slightly shortened because of of a player strike at the beginning of the year. Um, they finished the season half a game ahead of the Boston Red Sox. It was really a cut-and-paste-together team with some players left over from the world championship team, like Willie Horton, like Al Kaline, uh, like Mickey Lolich. But just a bunch of other people just sort of slapped together the Woody Frymans, the Joe Necros of the world, the the Norm Cashes and the Aurelio Rodriguez's. And it would have been a championship for Billy Martin. And who knows what Billy Martin's career would have been if he had won that title as the manager of the Tigers, if he would have been a long term fixture in Detroit instead of having all the terrible things that happened when he became a fixture in New York. And which ultimately, I do believe it ultimately led to his personal destruction because his alcoholism and everything, I think, was fueled by his addiction to the New York Yankees. Uh, the fact they were so close to winning the pennant was tremendous. It would have been a great story of a just a real sort of slapdash team that won the AL East. But I'm not picking them. Again, the main reason is because so many of those players were part of the championship of 1968. One of the things about when I picked the teams that should have won, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times it has to do with a group of that team that you associate with that team losing their best chance for a title. And other than the Ty Cobb era, most of the great eras in Tiger history have included at least one title along the way except this most recent one now remember the tigers by the beginning of the 2000s were one of the truly terrible teams in baseball they lost 106 games in 2002 they lost 119 games in 2003 90 games in 2004 91 games in 2005 they were one of the worst teams in all of baseball. Jim Leland took over the team after Alan Trammell was let go after the 2005 season, and they won 95 games, went to the wild card, stunned the Yankees, beat the A's, and got all the way to the World Series. And they played a hobbled Cardinal team that somehow won the World Series four games to one. But... The fact of the matter is that that team was so shocking that they won the pennant. It was so unexpected that they won the pennant that I can't include that as the team that should have won because it was just like, wow, the fact that they got that far was amazing. It would have been one of the great stories of all time had they won it, but it was pretty damn close. But if you look at how the Tigers evolved, by 2011... They were one of the elite teams in baseball and drawing three million fans. Mr. Illich was spending tons of money. And year in and year out, the Tigers could be counted upon as being one of the best teams in baseball, if not the best team in baseball. Cut, 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 cut. There was one year, however... That if you're a Tiger fan, you just must be thinking, oh, it was there. And when I look at the team, it is the perfect combination. And that year is 2013. It was the perfect combination because you had the team, won 93 games, Jim Leland was there. It was Leland's last year. You had Miguel Cabrera putting up one of his elite seasons. You had Victor Martinez, still hitting like crazy. You had Prince Fielder, hitting the snot out of the ball. You still had the likes of Torrey Hunter, Omar Infante. 
You are Johnny Peralta. All these players that you look at, okay, good, solid players on the team and this and that. You still had a rotation that had Justin Verlander, a Cy Young Award winner, Max Scherzer, who would go on to win two Cy Young Awards, and Rick Porcello, who would win last year's Cy Young Award. Everything coalesced with that team. Everything worked in that team. That was the perfect Tiger team. It would have been the culmination of all the money the Illich spent, the greatness of Verlander, the greatness of Miguel Cabrera, that this combat, the greatness of this rotation that was probably the best rotation of a playoff team, at least you know, from the Phillies from a few years before, maybe since the Braves. Everything fit on that Tiger team. It was all aligned perfectly. Coming off of the World Series loss the year before, they faced a really tough Oakland A's team. Beat that Oakland A's team. That year, the Red Sox, the A's, and the Tigers all basically were dead even in terms of talent. That any one of those teams could have won the pennant would not have been stunning. But when the playoffs began, it was like, oh man, this Tiger team just a little better than everyone else. They faced the Red Sox. They nearly threw a combined no-hitter in game one. And we're up, what the hell was the score in game two? Was it 5-1? It was, that was, I mean, the Red Sox bats just looked awful. And it was 5-0 in the sixth. The Red Sox were dead from the neck up. Done. And then, of course, it was, what, 5-1 in the eighth inning. There's, There's no game. It's not a game. And then... Ortiz hits the Grand Slam with two outs, remember. Two outs, hits the Grand Slam, the cop jumps up and down. And the Red Sox win on the walk-off by Jared Saltalamachia. So that Grand Slam, okay, the Red Sox win game three, one to nothing. The Tigers blow out the Red Sox in game four. The Red Sox win a squeaker in game five. And remember in game six, in game six, the Red Sox were losing in the seventh inning, two to one. And a grand slam by Shane Victorino made it five to two, and the Red Sox clinched the pennant and went on to win the World Series. Two swings of the bat in games that were started by Max Scherzer. If Ortiz pops up or and Victorino pops up. Tigers are in the World Series. Instead, no. I think the Tigers would have clobbered the St. Louis Cardinals. That team would have won it all. That team with that combination. And then Leland left, and the team is, they made the playoffs the next year, but they they looked terrible. And they had a bad bullpen. The bullpen blew it in 2013. The bullpen blew it in 2012. They went into two straight years with the bullpen issues. If their bullpen was merely adequate, they would have won the 2013 World Series. And we would have looked at that era of Tigers that began in 2006, and you had a couple of leftovers hanging around on that team. But more importantly, you said the era of Verlander, the era of Scherzer, the era of... Uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera, all these players, and, and, you know, Fielder and some of these other players, but most importantly, Verlander, Scherzer, and Cabrera. Verlander and Cabrera are going to have their numbers retired as Detroit Tigers. And at the time, it looked like Scherzer was on that track as well. And now what do we have? We have an era of great frustration of a team that had a great run but didn't quite win it. Never won the big one. And that squad in 2013, it was there. If they could hold on to a 5-1 lead with two outs of the eighth inning, they would have been up 2-0. That series was over. That series was Clarence over. That It was done. It was Griffin done. 
And now Illich is dead. Leland is retired. And the team is in flux. They could be a contender this year. I actually picked them to win the wild card. But it's not going to be the same team. Even if they win the damn wild card, it's not going to be the same team. As I said, Mr. Illich is dead. Brad Ausmus is no Jim Leland. And you don't have Scherzer there anymore. You know, and you're, there's this, it's a different cast of characters. You still have Cabrera. You still have Victor Martinez. You still have Verlander. You still have Annabelle Sanchez is cashing a check. And who knows, maybe the combination of Fulmer and Norris and uh, Justin Wilson and Matt Boyd and some of those other players could be the ones that give it a certain amount of justice. And a title with Verlander and Miguel Cabrera would make it really sweet. But they're no longer the great players that they were a few years ago either. They both had good years last year. May be a little harsh. The fact of the matter is this. It was there. It was sitting right there. And they lost it. And the cop jumped up and down. And we're still looking at 1984 as the last title for the Tigers. So, Tiger fans, that's the team that should have won. The 2013 Detroit Tigers. So, let me know which team you want me to cover. You can go to sullybaseball.com. You can like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Stitchergram. Yes, Stitchergram. I'm going to create something called Stitchergram. It's going to go public. I'm going to make so much money on Stitchergram. Go to Stitcher and all that crap. You know where I am. Uh, there's going to be more stuff coming up on YouTube soon. Uh, music, as always, is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast. That will be posting here on the fourth day of May 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Just be better. And you can call me Sully.